The following program is being brought to you on the 7th Wave Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit 7thWaveNetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Astrology reveals insights into the greater world its changing cycles, and universal forces. Through the lens of astrology, we examine special topics and current events, investigate their meaning, and discuss solutions to personal and global problems. Welcome to Astrology, the Theory of Everything, with Mary Jo Weavers and Janie McCarthy. We're here to show you how astrology can be a powerful tool for self-awareness and transformation. You'll be amazed how everything is interconnected when using astrology. Now, here are your hosts, Mary Jo and Janie. Welcome. I am Mary Jo Weavers, here today with my co-host and friend, Janie McCarthy. On today's show, we will be talking about the Leo topic of leadership with our guest, Tiffany Lennon, author and lead researcher for a groundbreaking study examining women's progress as leaders in the United States. Hello, Janie, and welcome, Tiffany. Hi, Mary Jo. Hi, Tiffany. Hi. Good morning. Good afternoon. (laughs) All of the above. Yes. Well, Tiffany, you have quite an extensive and impressive resume. Currently, you are vice president of a nonprofit organization in Denver, Colorado. You formerly chaired and taught in the law and society and community-based research programs at the University of Denver. You were named as a finalist for the Denver Business Journal Powers Bo- Power Books Power List Award. And over the past decade, you have taken on numerous roles in the areas of business and economic development, strategic planning, outreach and engagement, acquisition, policy and legislative analysis, and performance improvement. You are an expert in the area of women's leadership, as well as being a shining example. So we are very happy to have you here with us today to talk about the report that you authored in 2013 titled Benchmarking Women's Leadership in the United States. This study was then released as a book in 2014 titled Recognizing Women's Leadership, Strategies and Best Practices for Employing Excellence. So, Tiffany, I would like to begin our discussion by asking you, how do you define leadership? What is a leader or what makes someone a leader? It's such a great question, and I think it's one that we discuss a lot as as a country, both indirectly and directly. Right, leaders, you know, to give you a short answer, there are two kinds of leaders, right? There are positional leaders, and then there are people of influence. And we can lead from wherever we are, right? You don't need to have a title in order to lead, although sometimes uh, it's a lot easier to lead when you have the title. But much like the Leo, 
anyone can lead depending upon where they are, and it's, and it's around the kind of leadership we want, right? We can have many different kinds of leaders, uh, but I think as a society we need to determine what is our values, uh, what kind of leadership do we want to see? For example, ethical leadership, leadership that creates positive, influential change, leadership that holds the highest good of everyone. These are the types of leaders I'd like to see anyway. That's so true. And you've worked in and worked with nonprofit organization as well as for-profit. Is there a difference uh, in leadership roles between those two categories? As you were uh, reading off some of my bio, I have to tell you, I was exhausted just listening to that. And I thought, (laughs) is that even possible that all that happened? And you know, the last 20 years or so. Um, And I I think I've been very fortunate in that I've been able to move in and out of academia as a professor, returning to industry as a chief strategy officer now and vice president of uh, organization in Colorado, one of the largest organizations in Colorado. So I've been fortunate in, in moving back and forth in industry, all doing very much of the same work. And I would say that there's, a, there's more similarities than differences in terms of leaders. Uh, I think those that have the title, oftentimes it's much easier to have a position of influence and change when people are looking to you to make that change, right? You have to almost uh, take a step back and, and really strategize and plan out how you're going to affect change when you don't have the position, the title. Mm-hmm. If we go back to um, where our research started uh, about you and your leadership involvement, um, I'm reading about the White House project, which I understand was unexpectedly closed down in December of 2012. But my question to you about it is, what was that? And what examples of program innovation in the human capital transformation area did it produce? You really have done your research. Uh, only folks that were closely connected to the organization knew that information. So I applaud you in, in your clever uh, research and accuracy of, of what you've discovered about the White House Project. Here's the thing. The White House Project was an organization, a national organization, that helped to put women in political leadership roles. So they did training uh, mentoring uh, of women of all ages to get them to run for office. So many women, for, and it's a national organization, so there were strategic chapters located throughout the country. Colorado had an office as well. And many of our women political leaders in Colorado went through the White House Project. So it was very influential. The woman who started it, her name was Marie C. Wilson. This is the woman that was uh, CEO and president of Ms. Foundation. Mm -hmm. Ms. Magazine Foundation, she started Bring Your Daughter to Work Day. She was the one that advocated for presidential Barbie. She is uh, someone that I look up to, someone that I revere. Talk about ethical leadership. She didn't need the title to affect change. She was truly a leader in how she showed up in the world and the power that she graciously invited, maintained, held, and shared. And so she, uh, in her wisdom, did this groundbreaking study in 2008 with uh, several university partners, uh, primarily on the East Coast, Harvard, a couple of other colleagues that she had. 
And she did this study in trying to measure women's impact and where women sat in positional leadership roles. And there was a need, which I'm finding is still very much present, a need for an updated study. And so she approached me and the dean of the Colorado Women's College at the time, uh, Lynn Gangone, and she said, you know, Tiffany, I know you've done this research before. Are you willing to, to own this, take this, and run with it? And I said, for you, Marie, you absolutely, I'll, I'll do that. And so I put together a team of researchers, and we literally, it was a descriptive study, so we went in and counted the number of leaders uh, and what they earned across the United States in 14 different sectors. It took us about a year, and then uh, I wrote a book that followed that. And Tiffany, this study was different from previous studies. It was much more quantitative, is my understanding. And um, you also approached uh, the study differently in that you focused on the nation's top performing companies and performers instead of across the board. Were, Were there any other differences in this particular study compared to previous ones? I appreciate that. And here's what's interesting is that while we think we have lots of data on women in uh, positional leadership and women in leadership, what I'm finding, because I'm still contacted, I mean, I wrote this book a year ago, I'm still contacted probably on a weekly basis to do interviews about the study. That tells me that there's a dearth of really reliable data out there. And I think to answer your question, one of the things we did differently is that we compared apples to apples. Mm-hmm. So we didn't say, okay, well, let's look at what, you know, where women sit in the education sector as compared to where women sit in technology. We separated each industry and we really compared apples to apples. We wanted to really have pure data because what was happening is that the discourse was becoming so corrupted, right, in that people were saying, well, of course, women choose to be teachers. That's why they earn less. Or women are choosing to have careers, I'm sorry, women are not choosing to have careers. They're choosing to have families, and that's why they're not advancing in leadership. So we were like, okay, let's just stop with the rhetoric. Let's stop with the myths, and let's look at what really is. And, you know, the point is not so much that men are bad, women are bad, right? The point is let's just look at what it is, let's accept it for what it is, and let's figure out how we can change it. Let's look at who is making those huge strides in ensuring that the best and brightest rise. So, so comparing the apples to the apples, tell us about these uh, 14 sectors, these categories that you examined. We looked at, uh, I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples. We looked at education, we looked at technology, uh, we looked at journalism and media. We tried to even break out the difference between journalists and media personalities, you know, which is sometimes no easy feat, as you can imagine. Uh, and we really... Uh, and we went even even deeper. In medicine, I would say we looked at primarily hospitals. And so if I was to be critical of that particular sector in medicine, uh, we only looked at hospitals because it's, you know, complex and so vast. I think if, if I was to do the study again, I would break out medicine a little bit more thoroughly. Uh, so we looked at medicine. We looked at law. We looked at business. We looked at entrepreneurship, social entrepreneurship, Education, academia, higher ed, K-12. We really tried to look at the major industries in the U.S. and 
compared apples to apples, meaning not just the C-suite, not just the chief executive officer, chief financial officer, et cetera. We looked at the leaders in the company. So in one given company, there may be as many as 100 senior leadership positions. There may be, in some of the private businesses, there may be as few as 10. So we didn't just look at the C-suite, meaning CEO, CFO, et cetera. Mm-hmm. This was a uh, very, the statistics, Tiffany, were really shocking. When you, one of the things that you came up with was that 70 to 90 percent of Americans are comfortable with females in top leadership roles. So, my question is that if the study confirms that women are overperforming men, yet they're being underrepresented and underpaid, uh, what's happening? with the perception of women in leadership over time? Well, it's such a, that's like the million-dollar question, isn't it? I mean, frankly, I think the short answer is that we have a cultural uh, bias that we all share. Men and women alike share it. And I would say probably women know uh, this bias uh, much more subconsciously than men do. And I'll give you an illustration as to why I say that. I've given a talk all around the country, uh, around this topic or on the book, etc. And what I find is oftentimes, and this is you know, not scientific, this is just my two cents, if you will. Oftentimes after my talk, men will come up to me and say, I completely know what you're talking about. I see it every day uh, and it makes sense. Women, particularly women in leadership roles, give me tremendous pushback. They say it can't be right that the CEO of, of Yahoo, who happens to be a woman, makes less than her counterpart. It, it can't be right, right? Your numbers, I can't be making 30% less than my male counterparts. It can't be right. So I think what we're fighting is, you know, myth versus reality and also a cultural bias, right? And, and it's, you mentioned women are outperforming men. Well, it's no surprise, really, if you think about it. Anytime you have, you have a marginalized group or a group that's underrepresented, it's a natural human thing to seek to, be, to, to outperform so you can be recognized because if you can't outperform, then you're not even seen as equal. So it's really not a surprise that women are actually, per industry standards, outperforming their male counterparts. So, Tiffany, can uh, your study illuminate some of these myths or misperceptions about women in leadership uh, positions, as well as debunking some of those myths? Um, You know, we've heard about these binders full of women, and yet we don't see them. Um, So, can you tell us specifically about some of these cultural myths or misrepresentations and, and what you found in your study? Yes, uh, women, here are some myths. Women choose lower paying fields. Women are choosing to raise families rather than working. Women take time out of work. Women don't ask for salary increases. They don't ask for money. What we find is, and now it's not to say that there, there isn't some element of truth to some of these things, but I have a hard time believing, for example, the CEO of Yahoo is less inclined and less assertive to ask for money as, as her male counterparts. 
Right? Because on the other hand, what do we hear? We hear about how vicious she can be, how, uh, you know, uh, how driven and how she will advance at no cost. So it's like, well, what is it? Is it that she is so vicious and she advances at, at no cost to others or has little regard for the cost to others? Or is it that she, you know, is too shy and not assertive enough to ask for a pay raise? Right? So it's, it's this kind of, conundrum, where if we just stopped and thought about it, it doesn't make sense, right? I'm not talking about the woman next door that is, you know, perhaps first in her family to actually uh, attend college and to have a career uh, and who is countering some of the entry-level positions in the workforce and trying to navigate that. I'm not talking about that person. I'm talking about women who who sought leadership roles, women who are seeking to be advanced in their careers who are motivated by salary, and yet they're still not at the same level of their male counterparts. Mm-hmm. Tiffany, um, I was wondering whether or not, um, before we go to break, um, I'm going to encourage our listeners to give a call to you. Maybe you can help some of them with strategies for breaking through their specific organizational glass ceilings. I'm wondering that with over 50% of the women out there working and so many of them in leadership positions or at least aspiring to leadership positions, they must have questions, particularly if they're as much victims to these myths as the men are. Absolutely, and I I do think that women and men share the same uh, set of myths, same set of beliefs, right? We, as a culture, we have co-created this. I'm yes. happy to share some of those best practices of the best companies in the U.S. that have really made huge strides in breaking the glass ceiling. Well, that would be great for you to go into more detail about when we come back from our break. Great. So um, one of the other things that just came up that possibly you could briefly answer is whether or not women are as good negotiators as men when they do have the assertiveness to get into a negotiation about compensation or a promotion. Sure. I'm, I'm happy. I mean, I think that's the same, uh, you know, the negotiation skills, I think, are the same sort of, uh, it's, it's another way we talk about, uh, you know, the assertiveness. So I'm, I'm happy to address that. I'm happy to, to identify, you know, what I, what I did was I looked at this systemically. What I did was I looked at the systemic ways in which companies have uh, really sought to ensure the best and brightest rise. And that is, I think, the important part of the conversation we need to get to. Sounds good. Well, um, listeners, don't forget that you can call in 43 minutes after the hour when Tiffany will be taking your questions. And that telephone number is 866 472 57 And we'll be right back. The Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Janie McCarthy loves being a professional astrologer. 
Her academic pursuits in consciousness exploration, negotiations, and relationship transformation have been critical to helping her clients integrate their material and spiritual worlds. She is known for her ability to simplify and articulate even the most complex concepts to trigger aha moments of pure, meaningful, and lasting clarity. Janie is available for booking presentations, workshops, and client consultations and can be contacted at www.janiemccarthy.com. Mary Jo Weavers is a licensed spiritual health coach specializing in soul personality integration. A certified karmic astrologer, Mary Jo uses the symbolic language of astrology to help her clients understand themselves and their life experiences from a deeper spiritual perspective. Mary Jo can help you gain clarity about your life purpose, relationship dynamics, and how to live your life more effectively. She is available for astrological consultations in person, by phone, and Skype. Check out her website at www.maryjoweavers.com. The Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Be extraordinary. Be the change. listening to astrology the theory of everything to reach the hosts or the guests today please call 1-866-472-5795 again that's 1-866-472-5795 you may also send an email to astrotalkradio at icloud.com now back to the show welcome back everyone I'm Janie McCarthy with my co-host, Mary Jo Weavers, and we are here with a special guest, Tiffany Lennon, who is the author of the Benchmarking Women's Leadership Study, which has some fascinating information in it for women and men alike in the business world. So before we went to break, we were talking about the myths and debunking some of the myths that... Uh, exist in the work environment about women in leadership positions. Tiffany, maybe you could go into some of the s- specific sectors that were covered in your study and give us some examples. Absolutely. So one of the myths, I think, that permeates much of our culture, and let me just say that when I went into this study, I found I was deeply surprised and had many aha moments. And Marie Wilson the former president and CEO of the White House Project, was very wise and said to me, Tiffany, one condition. You run this study, but I want to make sure you have a very diverse generational representation on your research team. And so I had folks anywhere from 20 to 40 years old on my team, undergraduate and graduate students. And she was so wise in that because I have to tell you, the 20-something-year-olds could not believe what they were finding. Uh, right, because it again, we we're told that we can do anything, right? That this doesn't exist, that we can do anything, and and they were blown away by some of the some of the data that they were pulling. So one of the myths, getting back to that, was that women in education, you know, are the predominant workforce, which is true. Seventy percent of the workforce in education are women, and they, therefore, you know, have a, a, a 
what I what do I want to say here? Like a, a hand up, uh, if you will, in that industry because they're dominated in that industry, right? They're or in nonprofit is another illustration. Education, K to twelve, and nonprofit sector. You see women all over the place, and you do. You certainly do. Seventy percent of the workforce in both of those sectors are women, and yet when you look at leadership, it's under thirty percent. Hmm. And so. How, you know, when we look at those specific industries, right, and people say, well, women are choosing education, then presuming that there is going to be then uh, women leaders that are representative of the workforce, and there isn't. And so we have to stop and ask ourselves, okay, well, clearly there's something going on there that is much more systemic than a single woman not being assertive enough or choosing not to, not to uh, you know, advance in those leadership roles. The other piece of information I think is really important is that there is a bias of women in middle management roles, meaning women are overrepresented in middle management roles in across sectors, frankly, right? So it's not that women are wanting less responsibility and less work and are choosing that. Instead, we see an enormous bloat in the middle of middle management, Right, so there are it's about sixty forty percent women to men in the middle management range, and then as it moves up, you see a dearth of women. Then it starts to drop to twenty percent. So that's the glass ceiling we hear about. It is right. That's another way of of, of talking about it, right? But it what it tells us though is that there are women that are more primed in the pipeline to be leaders than men. And yet, it's an inverse relationship once they actually get to the leadership positions. Hmm. So, how will we all benefit from having more women in leadership positions, especially the men? What's in it for them to try and overcome these biases? Here's the thing. It's about the best and brightest, ensuring that America has the best and brightest workforce, that's what it's really about. And at the end of the book, when I uh, concluded with a, we did a quantitative study in the beginning, right? We looked at hundreds of companies, thousands of positions. And at the end, we did a qualitative study. We looked at five or six different uh, top companies in the U.S. And we, we tried to un- uncover what was working for them and what was not working for them and how did that impact who sat in their leadership roles. And here's the thing. The best and brightest company had the most diverse workforce, period. It's less about gender. I mean, it, it is, of course, all about gender on the one hand. On the other hand, it's about do we want to be a competitive marketplace in the world? This is about ensuring our best and brightest rise. Who doesn't have an interest in that? Uh, yes, I was interested in, in reading about, uh, you know, I had the question, or many people had the question, well, how do women perform in leadership positions compared to men? And um, can you talk about the results from your study that showed that the companies in sectors that had more women as in leadership roles actually performed better? Absolutely. So there, there's two elements of performance that we measured. And, you know, we started to look at performance, which I think is a, a very uh, novel aspect of the book because no one sought to try to measure performance because it's difficult. But we use industry standards. So whatever the industry uses uh, as a standard way to measure a company's performance is what we used. 
And so, of course, as I was starting to uncover this, I thought, well, women are earning less. There are less women in leadership. And so I thought, well, perhaps women are not performing as well, right? I certainly was not expecting at all to find that there was some outperformance, although now that we uncovered that, certainly it makes sense. So there's the the piece of performance that how women are performing compared to their male counterparts, and then how companies that have diverse leadership, how they compare to companies that don't. And so what we're seeing is when women are present, when people of color are present, the company performs better. Tiffany, the, let, let's uh, drill down a little bit here. Um, what specifically distinguishes women in the workplace? What are the talents, the skills, how they approach issues, problems? How, it is, how is it they're truly distinguishing themselves to create um, greater revenues or sales increases or impacts and reach and more expansive industry distinctions? Okay, well, let's, that, that's a broad question, and it really is very specific to the industry. So I'll give you a couple of specific illustrations. In looking at uh, art and entertainment, looking at that sector, right, we were able to look at and measure women, book authors, women, female authors, and male authors, and compare who are the best-selling authors. Women dominate in terms of sales in arts and entertainment. Dominate. Mm-hmm. And yes, their, their, compita- their compensation is a fraction of what men earn. You know, it's 70% women earn in the arts and entertainment industry, 70% or as less as 50% of what their male counterparts earn, and yet they're 70% of the best-selling authors uh, of some of the top entertainers in the U.S. Hmm. What are some other sectors where you see that sort of um, result? In higher education, in, uh, you know, at the uh, college, university level, women earn 60%, between 55 and 60% of some of the national research awards. So highly competitive, having, you know, been in the higher ed sector, highly competitive, very difficult to obtain some of these national research awards. And we're talking about, you know, the, the top 10 entities like the NIH, NEA, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, uh, these lo- research grants. I love, sorry, the fact, I love the fact that you brought this up. Let's follow the money a little bit here. Yeah. Because <laughs> particularly in the business world, uh, that usually is a very good pointer of what's going on. Your study shows that in the Ivy League schools, five out of eight of them, women receive the most grants in science, education, humanities, and health. And at the University of Denver, where you are, you doubled the endowment funds. What corporations and foundations are financially supporting this uh, coming to parity for women in the business world? Where is the money coming from? Who is out there that's supporting these, these gains? Well, what's interesting is that, I just want to make one quick note, is that many of these uh, competitions, these national competitions where uh, faculty, professors are going after these 
by the way, women have virtually made no progress in academia. You know, we, we have seen progress among the top institutions with women chancellors and women presidents, uh, but, you know, it's very minor in the big picture of things. We, you know, there's been a couple more popping up, and so we think that women are making all these gains. But in reality, women in academia have made virtually little gains since the 1980s, which is true across many sectors. Uh, it's been two steps forward, one step back. And many of these national competitions that women and men compete for uh, in academia are blind, meaning that the reviewers do not know who's applying, if it's male or female. Hmm. So they're just yeah. outperforming the male counterparts in, in the they grant are. proposal writing. Well, and they are, and in the research. But if you think about it, once again, they absolutely have to. In order to advance in their careers, it's not good enough to be as good as their male counterparts. They have to be better to be recognized. I mean, we all have experienced that. Any marginalized group, uh, whether it's marginalized by race or by gender, you have to outperform to be recognized. It's not enough because you're, you're having to overcome cultural biases and stereotypes. So you have to outperform to be seen and recognized. So we, we see this glass ceiling across all of these different sectors. Um, are the, the myths and the misperceptions about women uh, uh, the same across these sectors that are keeping, pe- keeping women from those leadership positions? Or do we have uh, different myths or misperceptions to overcome that are different depending on what sector we're talking about? I think the cultural misperceptions are consistent across the board. And I think depending upon how you identify, if you identify not only as a female but as a female of color, then, you know, it gets more complex and more complicated, certainly. I'm not, under, I'm not trying to minimize that at all. Here's what's interesting, though, about what I found and how it debunks some of the myths that are out there. We like to think, well, if women only had better negotiation skills, if women could only ask for more money, things would be different. But yet, when you look at all of this on a whole, here's what you find. You find that in brand new industries where there's not a lot of structure, not a lot of institutionalization, not a lot of barriers, women are making up 60 and 70% in social media, for example. Technology there's not as many barriers, although it's changing a bit, right? Technology once uh, had a vast number of women in leadership roles because, you know, it was relatively new. When you look at very highly institutionalized sectors like medicine, law, academia, K-12 even, then you see these embedded cultural biases. Now, I had um, very intelligent, very smart uh, uh, mentor of mine who, you know, talked about modern dance and how ballet was once dominated by women and how uh, men eventually, you know, became the norm in ballet and ended up, uh, you know, there was lots of institutionalization of, of ballet and therefore women then, you know, started modern dance, right? And then women started to excel in modern dance, right? And now that also has been more male-dominated, right? So there's a systemic issue going on. It's not just, oh, the person next door didn't ask for a raise or, you know, she's, you know, any other female stereotype you can come up with. We can all come up with so many more. She's this, she's that, she's the other thing. Right. So it sounds like uh, with these newer sectors or these these um, these new cutting-edge 
technologies or um, companies that provides the the greatest opening for women to move into leadership positions without having to deal with with these glass ceilings in place. But as uh, what I'm hearing is as those particular industries or organizations mature and become more institutionalized, then it becomes more difficult. That is correct. Here's another debunked myth. Women uh, entrepreneurs, women are the fastest growing group of entrepreneurs. Uh, Women of color are the largest Hmm. percentage of that. And uh, people, if you talk to them, you ask, if I ask an audience, like, well, what do you think is the is the where women have what industry do you think women start their own businesses in mostly everyone talks about lifestyle businesses service businesses you know what the truth is what it's technology (laughs) wow and same thing right we talk about who are our science teachers in high school right they're men and men choose science and that's why they get paid more as elementary as a as a k-12 teachers false men are mostly pe teachers Women, I mean, not to say there aren't men science teachers, there certainly are, but women make up nationally the majority of science teachers. And so here again, we just constantly have this, you know, what we believe to be true versus what is actually true. Hmm. So if we're all, not just the men, but women as well, are operating on on assumptions, does it take a generational change to come into these decision-making positions to change things around, as opposed to wait for organic growth to do the job? I think we have been waiting since since the 1980s. We've been waiting for organic growth. We thought, well, once women got in the pipeline, things would change. And what what we're saying is, hey, we actually, it's been 30, 40 years almost. Women have been in the pipeline for 30, 40 years. Things have not changed. In fact, it's been the same. The greatest gains women have made have been from the 1960s to the 1980s. What also occurred during that time period? The feminist movement, right? Mm -hmm. That's when the feminist movement was strongest. Huge gains were made. And then we thought, well, we, you know, I think... You know, the notion of being a feminist is, became very negative, right? The perception of being a feminist became very negative. And as a result, we, you know, we backed off and people shied away from being a feminist. And, you know, there has not been a coordinated effort in any real way since the 1980s uh, to, to raise some of these awarenesses around cultural biases. Hmm. So it's almost as if we've uh, kind of fallen back to uh, pre-1980s level of of interest or level of wanting to do something about it to advance the cause, or we've gotten complacent in some way? Yes. Hmm. So what I'd like to do, let's go to break now. And when we come back, let's talk about exactly what needs to be done. What are the recommendations that came out of the study that could change this trajectory? We'll be Right. right back. The 7th Wave Channel on the Voice America Network. 
Mary Jo Weavers is a licensed spiritual health coach specializing in soul personality integration. A certified karmic astrologer, Mary Jo uses the symbolic language of astrology to help her clients understand themselves and their life experiences from a deeper spiritual perspective. Mary Jo can help you gain clarity about your life purpose, relationship dynamics, and how to live your life more effectively. She is available for astrological consultations in person, by phone, and Skype. Check out her website at www.maryjoweavers.com. Janie McCarthy loves being a professional astrologer. Her academic pursuits in consciousness exploration, negotiations, and relationship transformation have been critical to helping her clients integrate their material and spiritual worlds. She is known for her ability to simplify and articulate even the most complex concepts to trigger aha moments of pure, meaningful, and lasting clarity. Janie is available for booking presentations, workshops, and client consultations and can be contacted at www.janiemccarthy.com. The Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Seek greater awareness. You are listening to Astrology, the Theory of Everything. To reach the hosts or the guests today, please call 1-866-472-5795. Again, that's 1-866-472-5795. You may also send an email to astrotalkradio at icloud.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, this is Jane McCarthy. Mary Jo Weavers, my co-host, and Tiffany Lennon. We were just talking about the um, ways in which some of these norms that are not particularly supportive of bringing women up into the management, executive management ranks, what needs to happen. Mary Jo, you want to take it from here? Thanks. Yes. I was wondering, Tiffany, um, you know, a lot of these myths that uh, that we've held on to for the last decades have been debunked by your study here. And a lot of the assumptions that we've been making about why women aren't in leadership positions uh, are, just aren't true. And so it seems to me that it, within these sectors, within these institutions and organizations, um, some things have to change. What needs to change in these institutions in order for women to move into these top leadership positions? It's such a great question, Uh, and it was one that I had, too, which is how the book ended up being written, because it was, I was really curious as to a couple of things that were going on in these industries. I'll give you an illustration. The Department of Treasury had has always had a white male leader, has never had a person of color or a female leader, uh, you know, for, for the department. And so I was so curious about this, right? And yet they had some of the highest representation of women and men of color in leadership roles. And so I became so deeply curious about this, right? So I thought, well, here is the only, the single contrary 
case study, if you will, that we found, right? Because typically if there was a female in a leadership role or if there was a, a male of color, then the leadership was much more diverse. And so uh, I looked at the Department of Treasury and then the Social Security Administration has had men of color and women in leadership roles, and yet they had very poor, comparatively, representation of, of women and men of color in leadership roles. And so I thought, how interesting. These were the two exceptions in the whole study, in the hundreds and hundreds of companies and entities that we looked at. And so what does any, any good researcher do? I read thousands of employee surveys. Uh, we, uh, you know, what was fortunate is that there are federal entities, and so everything is made available publicly, including employee satisfaction surveys, where they had, you know, 85% of employees return the surveys, which is unheard of, right? So really good representation. And what we found was people who worked for the Department of Treasury said, what we know to be true is that promotion is based upon performance not based upon who you know. The people in the Social Security Administration, and by the way, we interviewed uh, very high leaders in both agencies uh, that confirmed this as well. Social Security Administration, the employee said, you know what, it's not, it doesn't matter how well you perform. It matters in who you know hmm. and that culture. And so, you know, as a result, that formed the basis of our quantitative study, I'm sorry, our qualitative study in, in looking at about six different institutionalized entities. And the two things that came out of that were that, yes, performance matters greatly, and really trying to create these objective performance measures matters. And it's hard to do. You know, the Department of Treasury, it was, you know, it's easier to do there because they can probably easier, in a much easier way, quantify performance. Yet, if you can't quantify it, you're, you know, you're not really, how do you know when you're, when you're achieving what you need to be achieving? And so performance and measuring performance was a key aspect, and also in creating an inclusive culture, one where everybody's welcome to the table, and a culture where it's not okay to make racist jokes, it's not okay to make gender-biased jokes, right? Really creating a, a culture in a place that it's okay to show up who you are the purpose is for you to contribute and add value to the organization. Hmm. So, so with all the international travel that you've done and international organizations you've seen, going beyond those two government organizations, who, who is really a role model for best practices in the world? Who's doing it right? Who's really seeing results? Xerox? In the U.S., I mean, I'm grateful to say that the U.S. is doing a lot of things right. Uh, there's a couple of organizations in the U.S., like Xerox and uh, TIAA-CREF, which is a major, largest private financial institution in, in the U.S., uh, interestingly, for teachers, uh, was historically for teachers. And so those two companies are really doing it exceptionally well. Xerox blows me away in some of their best practices. They, it truly does. It's, it's a model, and frankly, they've been recognized uh, many times over for how well they are, they're doing it. So tell us about some of those best practices that Xerox is using and, and uh, you know, perhaps some of these other um, institutionalized entities can adopt some of those. 
they, Xerox has worked really hard on performance measurements, really ensuring that the performance measurements are, are present not only for entry-level people, middle management, and even senior leadership, but for the C-suite as well. And so what's good for the goose is also good for the gander, so to speak, right, in, in, in this company, in Xerox, in that the leader models what needs to happen within the company. And the employees are, giving a, are given a great deal of um, power to influence policies, right, through employee groups. So they'll have a female group, they'll have a Latino group, they'll have a black group, they'll have a gay and lesbian group, employee resource group is what they're called, and many of these large companies have them, not unusual. A company like Wells Fargo, for example, has also ERGs, employee resource groups, but they don't really have power in the company, right? They're just sort of a nice, feel-good social thing. Well, at mm-hmm. Xerox, those groups actually affect change, and it is both a bottom-up and a top-down approach. And so the top-down approach is, you know, that modeled leadership, the kind of leadership you'd want to see. This mm-hmm. inclusive culture that you speak of. Exactly. So... Um, what um, if people are interested, and I'm sure that they are, in finding out more about women's leadership, Tiffany, what resources, other studies or services would be helpful for them to explore? Well, this is uh, the interesting part, right? Every sector might have a little niche group. For example, if women want to get in politics, the White House Project has resurfaced uh, under a new name, Vote Run Lead. That's a group that helps to get women in political office. So, you know, there, I, I can't say there's one resource out there that exists to really, you know, that I know of, and if somebody else knows of it, please let me know. I mean, I know that there are industry-specific groups, niche groups that will help uh, women nonprofits that will help to advance women, but for the most part, uh, there isn't, you know, a one, one-stop location. Uh, I think the biggest thing, in my estimation, after doing this, one, it is important to be part of your ERG and to ensure that the ERG actually has influence if you're with one of these larger companies, the employee resource groups. Two, it's important during the interview process that you ask about culture and performance, right? It's a two-way street during the interview process when you accept a position. Right? And I think it's, it's, it's an important set of questions to ask. Um, you know, is the, are the ERGs taken seriously? And I can tell you if the ERGs are not taken seriously, there's probably not. It's probably very heavy on the top and doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't allow for uh, that two-way street, if you will, that bottom-up approach where employees' voices can be heard, right? That's how Xerox was able to make so many best practices be realized is because their employees had a voice in that. You know, the other piece is ask if senior leadership actually has, you know, a performance set of metrics that are, um, you know, and, and ask what are the standards of senior leaders because what I have found is that when the standards become different, right, and this is not uncommon, Walmart, for example, they have all this rigorous training for middle managers uh, to ensure that there isn't race and gender biases. And I would say middle managers at Walmart, you know, they are probably some of the best prepared in terms of creating an inclusive culture. But yet when you start to look at the leaders, the senior leaders within Walmart, you know, those same standards don't apply, 
Mm-hmm. Where where are some other bright spots we we see uh, women in top leadership positions? Uh, you've mentioned a, a few good ones here, like Xerox. Um, and are there some other important uh, areas or sectors where where we see some good examples? TIA, CREF, as I mentioned, the Department of Treasury. I would say those are the three, really, uh, the three crowning gems. Mm-hmm. So you have uh, government entity, you have financial services, uh, and then retail technology. Mm-hmm. Among our states, isn't Colorado also up there? Well, that's interesting. That's, I've been getting a lot of uh, interest to do a state study. We don't really know is the answer to that. You know, many states don't really know. We might know how women, you know, how they do in terms of sitting on a board in business in California, for example, but there really hasn't been that work done at this, in this kind of deep way at the state level. And so I can tell you that we haven't uh, funded a study like that yet in Colorado, although certainly there are people talking about it. So it sounds like it, um, what, what I'm hearing from you today and, and what I've read in your report is, at least in my experience over the past couple generations, we've put so much emphasis on trying to train young women and women of color to, uh, to improve their skill set or to uh, approach uh, jobs or their training differently or to take on different behavioral or personality characteristics in order to advance. And what I'm hearing is we really need to be focusing on the top. We really need to be creating some sort of change in our institutionalized entities. Yes, I mean, I think it's twofold. I think it is. I think the training we need to do of women is not act more like men, but to ask the smart questions that we know will make a difference in their careers. And in terms of the change at the top, you know, I I think that boards need to pay attention to this, right? Because, uh, you know, there's... There's a sufficient amount of evidence to demonstrate that when you have a diverse leaders, when you have diverse leadership, that the revenue in the bottom line increases, right? My study as well as many other studies have demonstrated that. And you would think, wouldn't you, that if in fact um, women leaders are, uh, the organization with women leaders show uh, rev- greater increases in sales and revenue, you would think the stakeholders would be paying attention to that and want more of it. I cannot believe we are at the end of the show already. Thank you so much for joining us, Tiffany. It's really been a pleasure to talk about such an important topic. And we're hoping that the call out that you made, if anybody knew of any resources, maybe our listeners would be good enough to post that information on our Facebook page, Astro Talk Radio, and share it with the others. So uh, next week, we're going to be going to another Leo topic, and it's going to be about the inner child in all of us. Our guests are going to be Linda and Michael Brady. They are both astrologers, therapists, and authors. And as always, we very much want to thank our listeners for joining us today on Astrology, the Theory of Everything. Our Facebook page, Astro Talk Radio, is there for you to like and share us with your followers. And if you would, uh, link us up, uh, link up with us on LinkedIn. 
And please continue the conversation with us on Twitter at hashtag AstroTalkRadio. Thank you all very much. Tiffany, thank you. And you too, Mary Jo. Thanks. It's been a great, great conversation. Many thanks to both of you. And again, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Tiffany. Bye, Janie. Bye-bye. Thank you for being a part of the show today. Please join Janie McCarthy and Mary Jo Weavers again next week for another edition of Astrology, the Theory of Everything. We're live every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America's 7th Wave Channel. May the stars be with you. Thank you.